You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Uh, hey there, Larry. How you doing? Good to see you, Glenn. And good to see you. It's good to be to have you back on the Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry, and you have tuned in to the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv and at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. I'm with Lawrence Kotlikoff, Larry Kotlikoff, my old and good friend, former colleague, best man at my wedding, my good friend, an extraordinary economist, professor of economics at Boston University, president of economic security planning, which has the best personal financial planning software on the market. You all ought to check it out. Uh, but in any case, we're not here to talk about his business interests. Larry, it's good to see you, man, on a summer day, almost summery. Yeah, you're right. Out, you're, you're outside. And are you on uh, over there on Benefit Street? Uh, yeah, just off of Benefit Street. Right yeah. near, uh, near, like 10 minutes from you. So I'll have to go bike riding later today. Or uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, uh, today's a little tight. Tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. We could, we could try to find some time. Yeah. Um, Larry lives in Providence, Rhode Island, as do I. It's a nice town. Uh, but, uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. Larry, um, I asked you to come on the Glenn show because I know you're going to have something to say about what's going on in terms of uh, national economic policy in this early uh, days of the uh, Joseph R. Biden administration. Uh, and a lot of money is going out of the door. Uh, trillions of dollars are being spent and are being planned to be spent on infrastructure and on COVID recovery and stimulus. Tax policy is changing. The Democrats, not the Republicans, are, are uh, setting the agenda now. And uh, knowing you to be purple, neither red nor blue, uh, <laughs> I thought your perspective and knowing you also to know what you're talking about when it gets down to the numbers uh, on the budget and on macroeconomic policy, I thought, I thought I'd uh, just try to pick your brain here a little bit and uh, see what you think about what's going on. Are you concerned? You know, and let me not try to give you or your answer for you. What, what do you, how do you see things shaping up now? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a, one of these dismal economists who's always concerned about, you know, always looks at the downside. Uh, and maybe I've been too pessimistic uh, over time, but I really, I don't think so. The The, the reality is that are, we're going from a, a, a debt to GDP ratio of around one third going back to maybe around 2010 to something like 110% of GDP by the end, end of this year. So we've had an enormous uh, expansion in government deficits, uh, and that's been you know due to COVID. But just in general, lots of deficit f- spending under the Trump administration, uh, under the uh, you know so so nobody uh, is focused uh, too much right now on that issue. And then we have all these off the book liabilities for Social Security and healthcare and defense spending through time which if you put them on the books, raises our debt to GDP ratio by a factor of about uh, seven, actually, as large as that sounds. It, it's amazing. We have a debt, total debt, total fiscal gap around eight times GDP. We need about 8%. We need another FICA tax and a half through time forever to pay for all the spending that we can't cover uh based on the taxes that we have that we're now projecting 
Think about it. So we're people, about people don't know what him. FICA taxes are. Excuse me for interrupting. I'm sorry. They don't they don't know what FICA taxes are. And what is yeah. this? Like fifteen percent off the top, half paid by the employee, half paid by the employer? It's fifteen point three percent payroll tax, up to about hundred and forty thousand dollars these days. That's what we're we're short one and a half of these of these tax systems. Uh, another way to say this is that we we're the the extra revenue we need is about eight percent of GDP forever. Uh, so we're in bad fiscal shape, much worse than any other developed country. And can, can I just slow you down again? I apologize, but again, most of the audience don't know all the details. So the first statement is the on the books indebtedness of the United States government has risen from something like 20 or 30 percent of GDP to something like one point something percent of GDP 1.1. in less yep. than a decade. Well, maybe, you know, like maybe maybe you go back to 2007 before the Great Recession and now look forward to, to okay. we are. We so are in less of, than 15 years, we we have uh, increased our indebtedness so that it's now equal to more than one year's of national income. But the other point, which I think is more fundamental and I think needs to be underscored, is that the off the books indebtedness. This is to say promises the government has made for programs that are going to have to be funded, but that don't show up on the budget programs like Social Security and Medicare uh, is seven times or eight times national income. If you count the numbers right, according to Kotlikoff, and if we were going to set the budget right so that we were actually taxing ourselves enough to pay for what we promised to spend, We'd have to double or more than double the intake from the FICA tax, which is 15% off the top of working people's wages. Did I get that correct? You got it, you got it correct. I mean, there's other, we could expand the FICA tax to cover uh, earnings above 140,000. Uh, so, but yeah, it's still, it's a big problem. And, uh, you know, the reason we have so much stuff off the books is it's so easy to put things off the books. If I take money from you, Glenn, when you're, let's say, 40 and promise to give you money back in the, when you're 70, have I borrowed money from you and promised to pay principal plus interest? Or have I taxed you and promised to pay, uh, make a transfer payment to you when you're old, a benefit payment? So if we use the first set of words, borrowing and repayment, debt service, then that obligation to pay you in the future that goes on the books. If I use the other set of words, it stays off the books. So economically speaking, you don't care whether I use one set of words or the other. Nothing in economics says that uh, we should account for these things uh, differently, but that's what we are in effect doing. We're kind of uh, mixed up in our, uh, we've had the politicians use language to keep things off the books. And then we're missing the forest for the trees in terms of our total, you know, Total indebtedness. Let, let me interrogate that just for a moment. If you borrow from me, you incur an obligation. It's a legal obligation. Yeah. That there, there's a certificate of indebtedness that I am uh, in, endowed with the power to enforce in a court of law. If you promise pro- program benefits in the future, you can always change your mind. And there's no court of law that can stop you. The Congress can't unilaterally abrogate its indebtedness to me, but it can unilaterally abrogate its promises to me for program benefits. So it does seem to me that the language 
uh, the, uh, matters for uh, the credibility of the future promise? Well, you know, it, it, there's lots of different. Uh, first of all, the, the government can uh, can default on its debt. Many governments have over the years. I, I, <laughs> I had a friend, Michael Dooley, when I was an intern at the Federal Reserve back in grad school. It is an entire office papered with uh, uh, bonds that have been defaulted by different countries. <laughs> the bonds are beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing is you can default on on debt uh, because it's mostly nominal debt by just running inflation, which we're in the process of doing or, or maybe doing. Uh, so you can. Yeah, I want to come debt. back to that. I want to come back to that. Uh, so I mean, just take it for example. In World War II, we issued lots of bar, uh, bonds to finance World War II, and then they took price controls off right at the end of World War II. The people that lent the money lost a quarter of the value of their debt because prices went up by 25%. We had a really high inflation in one year in 40, I guess it was 45 or 46, uh, if you look back at the numbers. So we wiped out a quarter of the debt like overnight. And uh, so... and. Uh, you know, most of the debt is being held by foreigners right now, or at least half, I think, is the number. So is it going to be harder to default on foreigners or harder to default on older voters in terms of taking away their Social Security benefits? I think it's easier to default on foreigners. Yeah, I think so, too. So, so I'm not quite sure. I, you know, legally, uh, legalities don't have any economic meaning in our models, right? Uh, it's only the probabilities of certain things happening that matter. And yes. Well, well uh, I'm saying legalities materially affect the probability of things happening. Yeah. But you just made the point that politics materially affect it. The seniors are more powerful than the farmers. So language does matter. I'm, I'm not going to take a complete neutrality point of view, but I do take your point that the indebtedness, the obligation, the overextension, I should say, is is a real fact of, of our fiscal existence. Yeah. So let me let me just push this just a little bit. Go back to the point about the fiscal language. You know, in physics, uh, time and uh, distance is not well defined. In economics, the deficit, taxes, transfer payments, these aggregate numbers, uh, personal saving, private saving, disposable income, all these um, measures that we talk about to our to undergraduates, and that are in the you know, principles of economics textbooks, the first year textbook, all of it is garbage. Uh, none of those uh, concepts are well-defined, just like time and distance is not well-defined uh, in physics. Uh, space-time apparently is well-defined, but not those other things. So, so our economic equations don't determine what the deficit is. Uh, another way to think about this is we can talk about the math in our models in French or English and German and what language we use is kind of could de- would determine what we say. Okay, this model has is running this deficit, uh, but if we use a different kind of labeling or language, we would say it's well the deficit path is this, and the off the book deficit uh, is that. You know, fundamentally okay, uh, the model will be the same. The model will be the same independent of how we label it. Well, I, I have a question that we're doing theory right now, and it's very interesting to me. Anyway, I hope to other people. Uh, and you're making a kind of relativity point, you're, you know, as with the analogy of, of physics. And you're saying yeah. that the nominal uh, uh, words that we use for describing uh, are the government's fiscal position 
can be switched around and you can get apparently different answers, but there's a constant underlying reality that's independent of the words. And I want you to tell me what that is. That's, what corresponds to space time exactly. in the world of economic relativity? Well, that's called the fiscal gap. That's if you put everything on the books and you ask, uh, let's take the entire path of outlays, not label them borrowing or, uh, or, or sorry, debt service or benefit payments or per, uh, public, uh, you know, a government discretionary spending. Forget the words, just say, okay, here's the path of total outlays. Here's the path of total receipts. In present value, do they match? That's the government's intertemporal budget. And the fiscal gap is the extent to which that intertemporal budget and present value uh, is not, sat- is, you know, not uh, zero. And where the outlays in present value exceed the, the receipts in present value. In the U.S., the fiscal gap is about $160 trillion. That's what we should be measuring. That's what Congress should be talking about and focused on all the time. And, if, uh, and how it's going to get resolved. Now, there was a, a bill. Those numbers a, are so large that I don't think people could get their head around it. That's eight years of national income. That's eight years of national income is the difference, says Kotlikov, between what the government over the long term has committed itself to spending and what the government over the long term has empowered itself to collect in taxes from the citizenry. Right. That's mind boggling. And one reason it's mind boggling is I'm wondering how it could possibly exist. Why would anybody hold our bonds? Well, I would say nobody should if they're, <laughs> sure. I would certainly not hold our bonds, uh, uh, given what I, what I see here. Uh, there was a bill introduced by members of Congress called the, um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, uh, yeah, it's slipping my mind for the moment, but, uh, anyway, it was to uh, force the G- CBO, Congressional Budget Office, and uh, other agencies to do this fiscal uh, uh, gap analysis, and it got nowhere. Only had eight. Uh, this was about a decade ago. Only got eight senators to endorse it. So there's something going on here about you know politics. Uh, it was called the Inform Act. Uh, it was to inform different generations how they're going to be treated. And it never got uh, much uh, traction. So there's a paper on my website at kotlikoff.net under articles with Jerry Green, uh, you know, the theorist at Harvard, uh, called um, On the General General Relativity of Fiscal Language, which is focused on pointing out, you know, showing mathematically that no neoclassical economics, economics model, no model in which agents are rational, you know, the model could, in, could include all kinds of market problems, failures, uh, information problems, uh, distortions. But as long as the agents are rational, in any model that we economists write down, these uh, uh, labeling problems exist, and the deficit will not be well-defined, the taxes, transfers, all these other measures I mentioned won't be well-defined as a theoretical proposition. So our theory says... We're talking about, you know, it's like an emperor's new clothes thing. Our theory is saying uh, we have, um, sorry, I've got some motorcyclists around here. That's uh, okay. Yeah. The, uh, you know, uh, our theory is saying we're uh, talking about, um, we're driving in New York with a map of Los Angeles. And I think we're going to end up in the East River. Okay. That's a good line. 
<laughs> I wish you could spell spell out the details of it, but first of all, I want to just underscore how I understand the theoretical point uh, as illustrated by your example. So the government pays uh, benefits to people when they're old. It's called Social Security. One way of looking at it is the government is uh, asking if it can borrow money from me while I'm working and it hands me a piece of paper that says I owe you and that's my social security guarantee, that piece of paper. That's your bond. bond. So that when I get old and I want my money, I come with that piece of paper and the government pays me my money. Now, if it does that, it has to enter into its book, we owe Glenn Lowry $100 million because that's what I plan to collect from. So it has to enter into its book in a certain amount of indebtedness, and that'll go on the thing. Another way the government can do it is simply to tax me and transfer the money to old people who are alive right now with the implicit promise that when I get old, it'll tax the young people at that time and transfer that money to me when I'm old. And then it's going to look different. It's not going to be a explicit indebtedness of the government. It's going to be what? And maybe I'm not following it all the way down the line. It'll be called an unfunded liability, but it won't be on the books. It won't add to the official debt. So this number that we, you know, that that they're telling us is the number that our kids have to be concerned about or we should be concerned about on their behalf is going to be a lot smaller because, you know, as you said, it's like one eighth of the true number. Uh, and if so, it's if not just the Chinese bondholders who our grandchildren are going to have to pay. It's also my children who my grandchildren are going to have to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is an ongoing. Every generation is being told you're going to have your turn to expropriate your kids. It's a Ponzi scheme. Uh, that's what's been going on. And, uh, you know, we're getting to cut, have the point where it's now becoming more noticeable because the official debt, which is the only thing people are really paying attention to, the Social Security trustees, for example, have a statement in the uh, in Table 6F1 of their trustees report they put out every year. The last time they put it out, the unfunded liability over the long term, $53 trillion. The official debt right now is about $22 trillion. Uh, it's right there in black and white, an official report saying that, but they hit it way in the appendix of the trustees report, and the trustees didn't bother to mention it. And under Republican administrations or Democratic administrations, they don't talk about this number. It was uh, Paul O'Neill, the former Treasury Secretary under uh, GW, who uh, uh, who put it into the re- into the report, and they haven't had the the these trustees quote trustees haven't had the guts to get rid of it, uh, the, so they just try to hide it by putting it in the appendix. The Deep Social Security's the, unfunded uh, liability is fifty six trillion, fifty six trillion. Might be fifty three. I'm misstated. I think it's fifty three trillion. Yeah. So Social Security by itself accounts for more than half of the total uh, fiscal gap that you were referring to earlier. Well, I would say if the way they measure it, it accounts for more. But it's actually I would measure it at a much smaller number because they're using too low a discount rate. They're they're valuing the these benefits in the future uh, at too high a, a price okay. rate. Technical but detail, but I get the point. So again, I'm back to my question. 
how can this be? I mean, obviously, it's not sustainable. People worry about climate change. Well, how about fiscal collapse? This is not sustainable forever. No, Something's going to have to give. It's like, you know. Uh, right? I mean, really, I, I, and I'm going to sound naive here. What's going on? Bondholders uh, in Saudi Arabia or in uh, Beijing don't, they, they're not stupid. They want to get paid or they want their grandchildren to get paid. They're, they're going from period to period holding this debt, but they can trade it anytime they get ready to. So right. they, they know that a piper is going to have to be paid down the line at some point, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not 10 years from now. Their money managers have to know this. Uh, there, there's going to be a reckoning. I mean, there's no free lunch. So talk about that. Uh, well, I'll just give you an example. When I when, in 2008, uh, I was in, went to China right after the uh, collapse of Lehman, and uh, uh, we had a meeting with 50 top economists in China. There was a huge public meeting, uh, and these guys actually started screaming at me about U.S. fiscal policy. They said, "U.S. Ha- China has all this debt." And you guys are going to be running, you're running inflate, you know, printing so much money, you're going to produce inflation. And they were actually screaming at me. I'm I'm talking about screaming. And so some people are aware of this, but, uh, has it changed? Uh, you know, it may be the Chinese government is buying U.S. bonds in order to extract some leverage over the U.S. government, uh, in terms of, you know, how it acts towards China. I don't, I don't know, but I, I can't figure out how anybody who's rational, who's really informed about, just look at the Congressional Budget Office projections. You'd conclude just, you know, the numbers I'm using to get to the $160 trillion fiscal gap are coming right from the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, in, so informed, anybody can see them. They're just not putting the numbers together in one some okay now how about this i wonder how you react to this and this is just me speculating off the seat of my pants they know that a reckoning is coming and they certainly don't want it to happen not on their watch that's why they're screaming at you in beijing on the other hand compared to what what are they supposed to hold they they have to hold something what are they supposed to hold i mean what are the alternative assets that are any more secure so so and, and moreover, if they try to get out, they'll ruin themselves. If, if you know, if there's a, a flood of the market of U.S. debt, the people who are the biggest U.S. debt holders are the ones that's going to take the biggest hit. So in a way, we kind of have them by the short ones a little bit. You know, so it's, it seems like it's a more subtle and interesting game than, than just pay up, you know? Uh, yeah. The, uh, but we're, if I were China and, uh, and running their you know, foreign currency reserve, would I be holding government U.S. treasuries? No. Uh, and what would I invest in? I guess I would invest in U.S. stocks, maybe, but not treasuries. I would, um, it's not clear we have a safe asset in the world. Uh, the, uh, you know, other countries debt, uh, probably Australia, New Zealand are, are too fiscally, you know, or Canada, these are fiscally responsible countries that's probably it if uh chile has been fiscally responsible but it's got so much underlying social unrest that one doesn't know Uh, so i'd say if i were thinking about buying bonds from a country i would say canada 
New Zealand or Australia would be it. When I, I'll just give you another, you know, I know we're, we're kind of straying off Biden. We'll get back to Biden, but. No, that's fine. I'll just give you uh, another story. I, I was asked by the New Zealand uh, uh, Treasure, uh, I guess Central Bank to uh, spend uh, about 10 days there as some kind of a fellow a few years back. And I arrived after this huge flight, long yeah. flight, exhausted. I'm sitting in the taxi listening to the radio. The guy had the radio on. It's a talk show. And it was uh, listeners were calling in and screaming about the recent uh, superannuation report. That's their pension system. That's their term for pension. Mm-hmm. So it's in effect a trustees report for their social security system. And they were so outraged that there was a, a minor trivial uh, fiscal gap in that system, not 53 trillion, not uh, two years of GDP or two and a half years of GDP, but something like, you know, maybe 2% of GDP. Uh, <laughs> and there's, you know, one, one uh, long ride to the, from the airport to the town one uh, uh, person after the next was so out, uh, upset about this. This is a big deal in New Zealand. We can't get anybody, not even the politicians, to focus on this stuff. Uh, and so the entire mindset is we actually care about our kids. We'll make sure we're not screwing them over. And in uh, Italy, you know, Italy, you think that of as having a high debt to GDP ratio. They do. It's probably like, 150% of GDP official debt, but they've had four pension reforms in recent uh, decades that have reduced their social security unfunded liability. So they're actually on a fiscal gap basis in far in better shape than any of the, than Germany, than France and far better shape than the U S according to the European, uh, uh, the what's called the um, uh, European council, which is a, a part of the, European Union, it's a, it's a uh, agency of the European Union. They do these calculations. They do fiscal gap accounting for the EU for all the member countries. And they put this out. It's called the S2 indicator. They put out a study every three years. They've been doing this for quite a while now. So they do. Uh, so they are concerned, but, uh, and they look better. So if I were Chinese, I would buy euro bonds rather than uh, U.S. Treasuries. Well, I have no idea how much the Chinese have to invest, but they'd probably be able to buy all of those bonds and still have a whole lot of money left over that they would need to invest. The scale is also an issue, but but that's New Zealand or Canada. But but let me let me ask you to respond. We're talking now about the fiscal gap to two intellectuals whom I know you know of. Do you know Mark Blythe, the political economist, my colleague here? The book is called Austerity. He's a Scotsman, uh, you know, I, he's a professor here at Brown in the Watson Institute and in the political science department. He was at Johns Hopkins before that. His book is called Austerity. And he says, he says, a pox on all you uh, fiscal, ob- fiscally obsessive, anally obsessive budget ba- balancers. The pursuit of the banner of austerity has driven many uh, a uh, uh, EU economy into uh, recession. Uh, it's all about uh, the bankers not wanting to uh, take a hit. Uh, and it, it's some kind of ideological belief system that people have. Uh, it's not really grounded in solid economics. Don't worry. So 
Mark Blythe, anti-austerity. And then there's Paul Krugman. You've heard of him. Nobel laureate, writer at the New York Times. And he's been saying, and I know you're not a Republican, but he's been saying, Krugman, that the Republican economists have been telling us time and time again, inflation was right around the corner. They bellyache all about the deficit, the deficit, the deficit. And guess what? The reckoning has not come and it's not going to come either. Then he has his reasons why. So what do you say to these to these guys? Well, you know, economics, if it has anything, it has budget constraints. And what it's, you know, if they were right, uh, I would say, uh, well, fine, guys, uh, Mark and uh, Paul, let's cut taxes to zero. Indeed, let's make them negative and let's make them negative, big negative forever and see how well that works out for our country. Uh, let's or let's look at uh, history. Let's look at Argentina that has been running these kinds of policies for a century and went from the high, fifth highest per capita GDP country to a, so it was a developed country to a developing country over the course of a, of a century running these kinds of policies. Or let's look at the 22 hyperinflations that arose that occurred in the last century and uh, where countries went well, bankrupt. Let me answer on their behalf. Of countries going under, and it can happen overnight. I mean, it can happen, you know, okay. people can see that uh, Enron, once they look at the book, looked really at the books of Enron, the long-term books, because Enron was keeping stuff off the books, Enron was out of business overnight. And our country can be out of business overnight, too, when, when its lenders observe what's really going on, they really understand it. Let me just tell you one other story. Well, hold um, on, before you, before you do that, I just want to answer on their behalf. No one is saying that there are no degrees of deficit that matter. We're saying the historically engendered degree of deficit in this particular case doesn't have the effects that you would say. And they would say, I am looking at history, not the history of Argentina or Weimar, Germany. I'm looking at the history of the United States over the last 20 or 30 years. And what I think I'm going to uh, stand on is they want to hold our debt because they don't have any place else to go. And because it's not a bad bet, it's a good bet to hold our debt. Well, meanwhile, the uh, you know when they hold our debt, they're investing. They're taking their savings and investing in the U.S. Uh, up till COVID, we were not saving as a nation uh, more than three percent. Uh, so our national saving rate has gone down the tubes. This is exactly what you predict when you take from young people and give to old people. Young people are savers. Old people are spenders. If you take from these savers and give to spenders, you get more national consumption, less national saving. So from 1950 through now, our national saving rate's gone from about 13% down to about 3% pre-COVID. Now people are scared they might start to save more but and consume less. But the uh, So what I'm trying to get at is that uh, our GDP can look uh, pretty good and can grow pretty rapidly based on foreigners bringing their their capital into the country, and we use that to produce with. But our national income, what we Americans actually uh, have in, in terms of uh, labor income and also uh, asset income, if we're not accumulating assets, if we're just you know, if we're not accumulating and keeping up with uh, in terms of wealth accumulation, then our national income uh, can decline or dec- not keep up with other countries, and that's what I see happening here. That that uh, in an international context, you have uh, uh, yeah people. People now are under the you know belief that the U.S. is a 
safe place to invest and they're investing a lot. And we are consuming a lot because of our fiscal policy, which is now going on for decades of taking from the young, giving to the old. And so we have this underlying decline in the, in, uh, national income as as a share of global national income that we're not seeing because we're not looking at those numbers. We're looking at GDP numbers. And this may continue for a while, but it may also come to a point like it did for the UK, where uh, the dollar uh, goes from being the world's reserve currency to being just another currency. And maybe the yuan takes over, you know, the Chinese currency uh, or some other currency, uh, maybe the euro takes over from the dollar. Uh, so it's not the case that U.S. economic hegemony is guaranteed. The, these folks who are saying, well, we can run this, we haven't had, seen any problems, and therefore we can keep, uh, it's like uh, having cancer and saying, well, so far it hasn't killed me, so I don't need to have oper- an operation. I'll just wait till it gets bigger and worry about it then. Uh, that's what okay. I see, flu-growing cancer. So I understand your answer to be to be in. uh, Excuse me. I I just want to make sure I understand you. You're responding to the anti-austerity and uh, inflation as a a boogeyman uh, economist by saying there's a problem here. We should be able to see it. It's in the structure. In the nature of the case, when things go dark, they'll go dark quickly, and we won't see it coming. But the underlying structure is sending a message and you fail to heed it at your peril. Yeah, look at, I mean, if you look at some of the fundamentals, like the age consumption profile, it used to look like this. Uh, 70-year-olds were consuming about 60% of what a 45-year-old was consuming. Now they consume about twice of what a 45-year-old consumes. If you look at 1950, the age consumption profile looked like that. Today it looks like this, this cross-section average consumption by age. That's showing you that we've had this big tilt in the consumption of the old people relative to the young people, and that didn't happen on its own. That happened because of policy. And uh, so that so that's another indicator, the national saving rate decline. Uh, and, and when you consider, this is so interesting, that it's young people, 40-year-olds and younger, who are raising children. And that if those households are income constrained with respect to investments they can make in the children's development, then this shift in the um, age consumption profile that you're uh, describing, such that older people are now consuming relatively much more compared to younger people than had been the case in the past, means that children are getting access, relatively speaking, to less developmental resources invested in them than heretofore because we have to assume that the altruism of grandparents toward their grandchildren is less robust than is the altruism of parents toward their children. Yeah, there's no altruism in this country to speak of, of between generations. The, the this is why we're we're ripping off our kids. And you know, when when you take fifteen, like we just talked about the FICA tax being fifteen point three percent. That's uh, going right out the door. That's money that you could otherwise be investing, saving and investing. And uh, now you're giving it to your parents and now you're in a state of dependency. So you're relying when you reach old age on your kids. But if they're not as productive and if they're uh, because they're not as, as well educated, if our education system is breaking down, which it is, uh, and if uh, the demographics uh, are such that we're having relatively fewer kids, which we are, and getting a 
to an aging society, uh, then there's even more pressure on this uh, Ponzi scheme of breaking down. So what I'm trying to get all across, you know, I, I kind of uh, 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 did a little, uh, you know, I, I was trying to re- respond to what's going on fundamentally, but what some of what we're not seeing is because of this international uh, global economy that we're in, that uh, if we were not, if we were a closed economy where foreigners cannot bring our capital and our saving rate went from here down to here, we would have a kind of a capital shortage and our interest rates would be up. And that would be another indicator everybody would see that, hey, there's something wrong with the U.S. It's not saving enough. It's got very high uh, returns to capital because there's a capital shortage. But capital has been flooding in from abroad from pe- from countries that are high savers. Uh, so it's masked. What I'm trying to say is that we have these underlying things that we're not seeing uh, in the fiscal area and the real economy uh, and uh, in the global economy, we're not seeing uh, this path of decline as a sh- our national income as a share of global national income. It's projected to decline in a study I'm working on now with some other economists. It's projected to decline from about 15% of uh, our GDP is about 15% of, let me put say it this way. Right now, we have about 15% of world GDP. China has about 15% of world GDP. If you look at the end of the century, uh, the simulations I've been running with colleagues uh, show that our GDP will be about 12% of world GDP. China's will be about 28% of world GDP. Wow. So 26%, 28%. So, and that's GDP. Now, if you look at national income, we're going to be more like about 8% of world national income because a lot of our GDP through time is going to be really a result of others, other people's investment in the U.S. And the return goes to them. It becomes their national income. Okay, let me let me ask you a question. How could this be anything other than what you would expect if there's some kind of long, long, long run convergence since technology is free to move across borders and capital is, in fact, free to move across borders and there's diminishing returns? I'd expect a relatively low capital per worker countries to attract capital and to be on the steeper part of the income curve so that the U.S. is only 5% of the world's population. We can't be 20% of the world's GDP forever if there's growth in countries and there's a common underlying technological production possibility. That, that They yeah. taught me that in Econ 101, Larry. Yeah, no, that's, that's the reason. I mean, uh, the I expect reason- the Chinese to catch up. Even if they're 28% and we're 12%, we still have a higher per capita income because they got almost 2 billion people over there. Well, you know, eventually their per capita income will, you know, catching up means catching up in terms of labor productivity. And China's population is actually projected to decline by about 400 million by the end of the century, according to the UN. So oh, the, this model that. does have, have catch up growth in the different regions. And it's paper is going to be called the, it's called the, econo- the future of economic power is going to come out later this summer. And so what you're saying is actually, you know, 100% true that these real forces, productivity catch up, demographics, that really matters for uh, GDP in the different country and uh, countries, because if you have, uh, you know, a declining labor force, then you're going to have less, you know, capital flow in, but less capital co- come in because there's less labor to work with. Uh, but capital is going to move around to 
get the highest return. And, and uh, but uh, so GDP is, you know, important and uh, uh, interesting. But regardless of that, there's national income. And you can be a country that can have a high GDP and a very low national income uh, because you are not saving at all. And you've wiped out your saving. And just think about, you know, uh, these islands in the Caribbean, like Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico is a part of our country. But- uh, hold on, before you go on, that's because foreigners have some claim on the GDP. So the net national income is short of the GDP by the amount that the people who lent you the money to, to build the stuff take out in interest and profits. Exactly. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. And so that's why our share of national income is going to decline faster than our share of GDP. They're both going to decline. Of world national income, our share is going to be, you know, we're going to be like a, a second-rate economic power in terms of our true national income by the end of the century. We're going to be akin to Germany, uh, to the world economy today. Not nothing, but not a dominant. We look forward to seeing this paper. Uh, is Can anything be done about it? Well, that gets us through policy. And, and you know, we, we wanted to try and uh, restore the economy, keep people um, uh, optimistic. A lot, a lot of the uh, short-run macroeconomic policy is, uh, I think, geared towards coordinating everybody's behavior, getting everybody on the same page so that we don't all get, you know, scared and stop and start firing our workers. Yeah. And that's what all this uh, current deficit finance has been about with the, under COVID. But it comes at a price. You know, we could be taxing rich people to give to poor and people have been laid off, but we're not. We're, we're taxing future kids to pay for the current COVID, COVID relief bill uh, and the one that was, you know, this, the relief that was passed under Trump. So, uh, so I'm concerned that uh, uh, we're getting into a, dig, you know, we're digging a deeper hole. We had a huge hole to begin with. And through COVID, we've made that much deeper. And it's our kids that we're putting in the hole, that are in the hole that we're digging digging deeper. And we're piling higher and higher, bigger and bigger bills on their, on their uh, laps. Uh, again, let me underscore what's being said here for the non-economists who might be listening. We want to avoid a Keynesian-style uh, recession slash depression of the sort that we experienced in 2007, 2008, and so forth, the Great Recession. A demand, uh, inadequate demand driven recession because of COVID. And so we have to pump money into people's pockets. You're okay with that? What well, you're, cons- I, or I you're concerned have- about doing it on the deficit instead of doing it, uh, by the, uh, taxing of, uh, the people who are relatively better off and transferring those funds above board, as it were. Yeah. People like you and me, if this were, uh, watch out Z- now. Watch out. Watch out. Yeah. You're, you're raising my taxes, Larry, but <laughs> raising your taxes. Exactly. We should be the ones who are footing the bill to help people that have uh, lost their jobs. The yeah. ones, uh, you know, who can do this, use this in their jobs, this technology and can, can maintain, you know, we're able to keep working and in some cases do even better under COVID. Uh, they should be paying the bill for this relief. Now, and Biden has said, COVID. Biden has said that nobody with incomes under, what is it, $140,000 a year or something like that? Well, $400,000. Four hundred thousand. No one with incomes under four hundred thousand will see their uh, taxes go up. So, isn't he doing what you advise? 
Well, he just, you know, uh, passed this huge bill, $2 trillion uh, package, and there was no tax increase on anybody. So it wasn't like he taxed us to pay for this relief. He, sa- he said, well, just going to borrow the money. And then the Federal Reserve is coming along and printing money to buy back the bonds. So this is the other part of the equation that we haven't talked about yet, which is the, the debt to GDP is getting, you know, going soaring. Uh, and that's the debt in the hands of the public. Uh, but through all the, through this process, the Federal Reserve has been also printing money out the wazoo. The basic money supply, what we call the base money, is six times higher than it was in 2008 uh, today. Wow. So, and prices have not risen. Uh, so, you know, your Paul and, and Mark would say, well, or any of these new modern, modern monitor theorists, modern monetarist theorists, uh, or so-called theorists, MMT. Yeah. Why, why are you worried about this? We've printed all this money and prices haven't risen. And therefore we should just, uh, borrow more money and print more money to buy back the bonds and just basically inflationary finance all this spending and prices will never rise. Well, I think that's extremely, um, irresponsible because we have the basis right now for a massive increase, like a six-fold increase in the price level. If the velocity of money uh, uh, went back to where it used to be, uh, it could we could definitely see a, an increase. And even just if well, you know, we have so much money floating around. You're, you're not forecasting a 600% increase in prices over some defined period of time. I know you're not doing that because you're a sensible guy. <laughs> Well, I'm saying that if you look at the basics, uh, we have uh, the potential for a high inflation. Now, the Fed would say, if Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, were here, he'd say, well, Larry, you're stupid. Well, he wouldn't say that. He's a very, very polite person. He'd say um, that's nuts because uh, if that started to happen, we would take our bonds and we'd suck back the money by um, by selling these bonds back into the market and the Fed has that ability, but that would lead to um, interest rates going up through the roof and yeah. recession. So, yes, the Fed is in a, in, tra- tough, <laughs> in a tough uh, bind here because um, if you uh, sell bonds, you're going to lower their price and raise interest rates. So, so we have you know engaged in irresponsible monetary policy as well as irresponsible fiscal policy, and this stuff. You know, it can go on for a while, but at some point, uh, when you start acting like a third world country in terms of your fiscal monetary policy, it catches up with you. That's what I'm ultimately concerned about, that we're in a path, we're, we're looking like, we're like on a slow path to Argentina, it seems to me. We're kind of mimicking their behavior. It hasn't quite bit us in the tush yet, but I think it will. Okay. Well, <laughs> I hope you're wrong, but uh, I actually, if I was a betting man, I'd I'd, I'd not bet against you. Uh, what about the Biden administration's larger philosophy for tax policy? So they want to tax the rich. So do you. Uh, they also want to raise corporate income taxes. And I didn't think you were in favor of that. I thought you thought if Trump's got anything right in that, that tax reform uh, that they got through uh uh, the Congress when he was president, it was 
uh, that he was getting closer to correct about the corporate income tax. Did I read you accurately in that? Not that you uh, want to say anything positive about Trump. We're talking about taxes, though. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, that uh, that reform of the corporate tax wasn't originally designed by Trump. Uh, He didn't understand it. The Republicans, it actually was a proposal that Alan Auerbach uh, uh, came up with. He's a Democratic. Well, he leans Democratic. Uh, This is the professor of economics at UC Berkeley who writes papers with Larry Kotlikoff from time to time. Yeah. So Alan uh, came up with a proposal, which then got uh, watered down. Uh, so it ended up, you know, the final Tax Cut and Jobs Act corporate tax reform wasn't uh, what it should have been, but it was better than nothing for sure. And uh, please tell concern- people why it was better than nothing and why you might have a problem with Biden going in the opposite direction on corporate taxes. Well, we want to make sure that people have an incentive to invest in the U.S. And if we have a, a very high marginal corporate tax, which means that at the margin, uh, every dollar I invest here, uh, every dollar of profits I earn, I have to lose, let's say, 35 cents on the dollar. I'm going to be less interested in investing here than in Ireland, where it's a 12 percent marginal tax rate. So bringing that, having the kind of the highest uh, or one of the highest marginal tax rates on investing in the U.S. wasn't a good idea. Now, so he brought, uh, you know, the Trump, Trump brought this down in, in, in that bill that got passed. And Biden would like to raise the, the nominal corporate tax rate back up. And I would say, look, we want to keep the incentive to invest here uh, uh, where it is or even lower it. But why don't you do this, President Biden? Raise the, raise the corporate tax rate, the nominal rate, but also ex- expand um, what's called expensing. So do something else, uh, which will keep the marginal effective tax rate low at the same time. Wait a minute. Hold on. You're the guy who said words can be fooled with any way you want, but all that matters is the bottom line. And it looks like you want a bottom line, lower corporate tax rate. You just want to call it something other than that. No, no. The, actually, this is, a, <laughs> this is raising the average corporate tax, but, raising, but lowering the marginal ta- corporate tax. So okay, that's an important distinction. Yeah. So uh, the way this would work is you would raise the corporate tax from, I think it's now twenty one percent, twenty one twenty two up to, I think he wants to put it up at twenty eight percent. But at the same time, you would expand expensing. You can now, if you're an investor and you're putting new money into uh, the economy, new investment, if you buy a computer, you can write it off. If you buy a building you have to depreciate it. So I'm saying let's let people write off investment in structures as well. And this will keep the effective corporate tax rate, marginal rate uh, down. But people that this is a, a break that uh, investors, new investors get for new investment. But for old investment, if I have a, a company and I put a building 10 years ago, I'm not going to bought a building. I'm not going to get any break. So my profits are going to be taxed at this 28% number. But uh, the the incentive to invest, the investors at the margin will say, oh, those folks will get a tax break for investing. They'll get the the expensing. So that's where you get more revenue without affecting the uh, incentive to invest in the U.S. It's called intelligent design. 
of fiscal policy. And, and we also have to worry about, you know, I'm not for taxing the rich and putting them into a 70% tax bracket, which, uh, or 65% tax bracket, which could happen if we if we did what Biden is proposing on taxing Social Security of people, uh, applying the FICA tax, that 15 or the 12 point, the Social Security FICA tax to people earning more than $400,000. That's part of one his original uh, campaign proposal. This would put uh, God help us. Yeah, this would put high earners, people earning more than $400,000 are very productive people. Uh, potentially, well, we think they're productive. Some are getting it uh, by luck, but uh, this would put them in a 65% marginal tax bracket. It could be even 70% in California. If you add all the things together, we don't want a lot. We don't want to, you know, induce them not to work. We don't want to have poor, poor people, many of whom are in a 70% or higher tax bracket already, uh, uh, because they lose benefits, you know, so many do- pennies on the dollar if they earn more money. We don't want to have people in the high tax bracket. So whatever Biden does, he needs to fix incentives to work. We need to get more taxes, but we we'll do it in an intelligent way, just like with a corporate tax, get higher tax revenue without affecting the incentives to invest in the U.S., get higher tax revenues from labor income without in- effect, with while also lowering uh, the um, distortions on labor supply, the tax. So, okay. so raise the average tax, but lower the marginal tax across the board. And, you know, I ran for president. I, I don't usually talk about this when I talk to you because I'm not, you know, some people think it's kind of ridiculous. I did this, especially some of my relatives. Um, but I did this uh, in large part to write a platform, which would say, here's how I would fix the tax system if I were president. And here's how I would fix Social Security, and here's how I would fix healthcare, and here's how I would fix the banking system. So that platform is right on my website at kotlikoff.net. It's a free download. It's called You're Hired. It's a book called You're Hired. And I transformed the platform into a book for President Trump. I said, look, you're elected President Trump. Maybe you can read. Maybe you can read this book. And the week after he was elected, I put it out. It says, you're hired a, a Trump playbook for fixing America's economy. And I don't think you read it. I don't think anybody in the administration read it. Well, that the uh, second is the most significant thing. Of course, he didn't read it, but he should have had somebody working for him who read it, who could then whisper in his ear. But but right. uh, we're getting toward the end, and I want to make sure a couple of points get explored. Now, one of them, I can hear what people are going to say defending the uh, increase in the corporate income tax, acknowledging your point about the important distinction between average taxes paid by corporations on their earnings and the marginal tax paid by someone considering making a new investment in the United States. That's an important distinction. We don't want the marginal rate to go up. One reason we don't want the marginal rate to go up is because they can take their money elsewhere. They could go to Ireland or whatever and, and invest their money in a factory or whatever. And, and we're competing. Now, one possible response to that is this is a race to the bottom problem of the global economies. And if we could all get on the same page and raise our corporate tax rates together, we could avoid the problem of chasing people away uh, with their investments. And uh, why can't we just have a conference, you know, and and get around the table and agree that uh, we're going to raise corporate taxes and uh, 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 do do so uh, in coordination? Well, Janet Yellen, you know, was a a PhD economist and was my I've heard of her. She, She and I are MIT alums. 
Yeah, and Janet was my uh, macro professor when I, my first year in grad school. So Janet's proposing exactly that, to try and get all the countries, all the leading uh, countries yeah. to agree on a corporate tax. Uh, you know, we have a, an expression in uh, Yiddish. It's called alibi. She she speaks Yiddish, a little Yiddish herself. It means I should live so long. Uh-huh. The European Union cannot get Ireland to raise its corporate tax. They lowered it from like 50% down to 12%. There's a huge boom in Ireland. It's called the Irish Miracle. And now they're trying to get Ireland to raise it back up to meet to the same level as all the other EU members. Uh, and that hasn't happened. Ireland might be forced to do that at some point, but it will. Uh, so this is not easy to get agreement and get And once you get agreement to maintain uh, behavior, right? It's got to be cooperative. In other words, they might cheat. Yeah. So, they find yeah. ways of changing the words around to act as if they haven't lowered their corporate taxes, but in fact will have done so. Perhaps by accelerating the depreciation right off of structures. Yeah, exactly. Right off the structure. <laughs> That's exactly one way to do it, or to have, um, uh, you know, the federal government subsidize the, the local towns to give breaks to corporations that invest there. Especially foreign corporations. Okay, Larry, I got to ask you what I got to ask you one final question here, yeah. um, and this is economist to economist. Okay. Okay. Now Mitt Romney got savage when he reportedly said to a microphone somewhere, "Corporations are people too." The Democrats had a field day, but here's my question, economist to economist: Wasn't he right? I mean, in other words, isn't the corporation, I'm serious, people are going crazy. We're going to tax wealthy corporations. Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, they never tire of inveighing against wealthy corporations. Here's my point. Tell me where I'm wrong. A corporation is just the legal nexus of a set of contracts between various stakeholders. They have employees. They have suppliers. They have customers. They have bondholders. They have uh, shareholders. That's all the corporate. There is no such thing as the corporation. It's a fiction. It's, it's just a legal entity. Now, Absolutely. taxing corporations means getting some money that would otherwise have gone to their workers, their customers, their bondholders, their stockholders, their suppliers. That's all it means. All you're doing is taking the money out of a pot. The pot ultimately redounds to the benefit of some people and the detriment of other people. There is no such thing as a corporation as far as the morally significant assessment of our tax policy. So when people talk about wealthy corporations getting away with tax breaks, what they really mean to say is pension funds who hold the shares of those corporations, unions whose members work for those corporations, suburban moms who shop at the store and buy the products of those corporations, Chinese bondholders who hold the debt of those corporations, et cetera. There is no corporation. Now, what's wrong with that? That just seems obvious to me. It's obvious to me, too. I mean, I agree 100%. There's, there's nothing wrong with it at all. And, uh, you know, one way to deal with a corporation, uh, the corporate income tax, is just to get rid of it and say, look, the shareholders, uh, every year the corporation has a profit. If I've got 2% of the shares, my taxes, uh, uh, I have to pay 2% of the profits in personal taxes. So we just allocate each year's corporate profits to the owners of the corporations and they have to pay taxes, make it a pass through entity, just like if you're a small business uh, corporation, uh, like an S corporation, this is already occurs with those corporations. So we can, we can move corporate in, 
C corporations, corp, you know, corporations can be, uh, you know, are facing the corporate tax in the past serenities and deal with the corporate tax that way. Get rid of it okay. and make it clear that it's an, it's actually paid by individuals. Now, uh, there's a bigger question as to whether uh, it's really paid by the shareholders or really paid by ultimately being borne by the shareholders or by workers. And this is, this is part of the of why I'm so concerned about not making us uh, uncompetitive in terms of foreign investors. If foreigners don't invest in the U.S. because we're not we're not saving, as I mentioned, so we need the other people's savings to come into the U.S. Uh, if they don't invest in the U.S., then our workers will have less capital to work with, and they'll be less productive, and therefore their wages will go down. So even though it will seem like I, a shareholder of a corporation, am paying a higher tax. Ultimately, I can take my money and also invest it abroad. I'll pull out of the U.S. too, to some extent. Uh, and the workers in the U.S. will be left holding the uh, uh, holding the, the stick. So, so we have to really understand that uh, who the government says it's taxing doesn't necessarily correspond to who is actually bearing the burden. And in this area of corporate taxation, I think it's really the workers that are paying the corporate tax. And that's another, that's a, the principal reason I'm so concerned about uh, knee-jerk uh, uh, fixes to the corporate tax or, you know, raising it without thinking through how this is going to impact the economy longer term. But I think Biden can have his cake and eat it, eat it too if he does some intelligent design. So I'd be happy to uh, help him in that direct, in that area. Well, I hope he calls on you. This has been Larry Kotlikoff, professor of economics at Boston University, my good friend. Uh, and uh, so glad that you gave us some time to break it down. Larry, we did economics at the Glenn Show. They say we don't do enough of that. So I'll try to get you back soon. OK, oh, sure. Well, you know, I think I'm your uh, apart from um, your sidekick. I think I'm John your, McWhorter. Uh, John McWhorter. I, th- I think I'm your most frequent guest on your show historically. Can you tell me that? Uh, I, we could look it up in the archives. I'm not sure. It's possible. It's certainly possible. But the thing that gives me the most joy is that you're proud to be able to say so, Larry. <laughs> I'm extremely proud. All right. Anytime. Okay. Take care, my friend. You too.